appears that the scripture reading this morning was taken from Acts chapter 2, which is not surprising as it is Pentecost Sunday. I was planning to read from Acts 2, but because the scripture is so large and grand, let's not reread the same chapter. I'll be referring to Ezekiel 37, so let's turn to Ezekiel 37 as our scripture reading tonight. And then we'll page back to, up to Acts chapter 2 to read our text. So let's read together Ezekiel 37, and let's take the first 14 verses. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, and behold a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, And the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. And said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man, say to the wind. Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried, and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves, and cause you to come up out of your graves, and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my Spirit in you. And ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land, then shall ye know that I the Lord have spoken it, and performed it, saith the Lord." 
That is the inspired and infallible word of God. May he bless that reading to our hearts. Now we turn to Acts chapter 2 again today. And let's read the first two verses. The text for the sermon is verse 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we observe Pentecost Sunday, and Pentecost is that great redemptive event that brought to a conclusion a series of great redemptive events that occurred in rather swift succession. The one great event that yet remains is the second coming of our Lord to judge the quick and the dead. Pentecost today. It's on Good Friday that we commemorate the death of our Lord upon the cross. The very next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday where we commemorate His victorious resurrection. Forty days after Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate Ascension Day. That would have been about a week and a half ago on a Thursday evening. We commemorate Jesus' ascent up into heaven. And now, ten days later, Pentecost. The exalted Lord Jesus Christ pours out in full measure His Spirit upon the church. Pentecost, and it looks like you probably heard of this this morning, Pentecost is the name of an Old Testament feast, often called the Feast of Weeks. Pentecost was celebrated 50 days after the first Passover Sabbath. Passover. That was one of the great feasts commemorated in the old dispensation, and it celebrated the blood of the Passover lamb that was sprinkled on the doorposts of the dwelling places in Egypt. And God said, if I see the blood, then I will pass over you. Death through the angel of death averted by the blood. And that blood, of course, is pointing ahead to the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed upon the cross, washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus. God says, if I see the blood, I, in my judgment and wrath, pass over you. It's on the basis of the blood that we live and have salvation in God's covenant. Passover. The blood of the Lamb. Well, there was another great Old Testament feast called the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, celebrated 50 days later, in which the Israelites would celebrate the conclusion of the harvest. All of the fruit of the land had been gathered in and stored up in the storehouses. With great joy and gratitude and celebration, the Israelites would take the first fruits of the harvest and go up to the temple in Jerusalem to commemorate this feast and present their offering unto the Lord. The feast of Pentecost. 
the reality of Pentecost is that the Passover lamb who has been raised from the dead and exalted on high at God's right hand, Jesus Christ, now opens the storehouses of all of the harvested saving blessings in heaven that he earned for us, especially by his death on the cross. He opens up those storehouses and now he showers blessings upon his church on earth. And what did he bestow upon the church on account of all of his labor? Well, we turn to Acts chapter 2, which begins in when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Pentecost came every year. Year after year, the Old Testament typical harvest. But now, the day of Pentecost was fully come. The reality had fully come. The disciples were gathered in the city of Jerusalem. There were pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast of the old dispensation. And there they all were. And now the day of Pentecost fully came. Jesus opened up those storehouses of harvest blessings and he poured them upon the church. And what did he shower upon the church? A person. A person. The Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity as his spirit. The Spirit of Christ poured out in full measure. Tonight, we consider the very first of the three signs that accompanied and indicated His coming. The sound as of a rushing mighty wind. So let's take as our theme tonight, as of a rushing mighty wind. And let's notice the sign given, the significance of it, and the strength from it. What we have in Acts 2 verse 2 is a sign, which is some earthly thing that is perceptible to our senses, and it points us to some higher heavenly spiritual reality. A sign. When you celebrate Holy Communion, you have the bread and the wine, which are signs. You can see them and touch them and digest them, but they point to something higher, the benefits of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the text, we have a sign. It's the sound of a rushing, mighty wind. And it's pointing to something. The sign is the sound. We read in verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing, mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. According to chapter 1, the 120 disciples of our Lord, those who were following Him, they were gathered in a house in Jerusalem, and included in that number were the 11 apostles. There they were in a house, and all of a sudden, there came the sound of a rushing, mighty wind. There was no rushing, mighty wind. Not one hair moved. Not one garment. Not one curtain moved. There was no wind. There was the sound of a rushing, mighty wind. Had the wind actually been blowing, it probably would have destroyed the house 
and brought it down in many pieces. It would have been destructive based on the sound as a loud, rushing, mighty wind. But actual wind was not necessary as a sign because the sound was so impressive. It made the point. It must have been so loud. It must have been so stunning and striking. Can you imagine what that sound was like? Let me try to help you. In 1956, the Lord sent to the West Michigan area a massive, unforgettable tornado that affected many of our Protestant Reformed people, especially in the Hudsonville and Standale areas. Subsequently, Reverend Voss would pen that meditation that lives in Protestant Reformed lore. Reverend Voss wrote this meditation, visited by the majesty on high. And he said, God came to us and he roared. I've never before heard a voice such as we heard around supper time, Tuesday evening, April 3, 1956. It sounded as though a thousand express trains were traversing the sky. The sound of a rushing, mighty wind. Let me add one more. Professor Inglesma was a 16-year-old farmhand milking cows when the tornado struck, and he later wrote about the encounter, saying, one element of the tornado the painting could not express. He's talking about a painting that fascinated him in his youth of a tornado. And for this, the young man was altogether unprepared. The sound. It was a roaring, as though creation had found a voice. The voice sounded from on high. It reverberated from the earth beneath. It echoed in all directions. The volume, unbearable at a distance, increased as the tornado came on. It was the voice of fury and power. Now I read those two accounts only because they can express in words better than I can something of what it must have been like to be in that house and all of a sudden, here comes this sound of a rushing, mighty wind. It had to be God. It had to be God. How else can you explain this sound, the living God and His powerful voice? Well, that sign, that sound was a sign perceptible to the senses. They could all hear it. It filled the house and it was pointing to something higher, heavenly, and spiritual, the coming of the Spirit of Christ. That this sign indicates the coming of the Spirit is evident from several considerations. First of all, it was back in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, that we read Jesus saying, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. The Spirit is coming. Verse 8, But ye shall receive power, after that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. The Spirit is coming. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost has come. And then verses 16 and 17, Peter stands up and preaches his sermon explaining the events of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit. The Spirit has come. The Holy Spirit. And the sign of His coming is that sound that filled the room. The sound as of a rushing mighty wind. There are four truths truths that we learn about the coming of the Spirit of Christ from this, the first sign. Number one, we learn that in His coming, the Holy Spirit is life-giving. This wasn't the sound of a cry, cry of victory. This wasn't the sound of a trumpet blast, loud and stirring. This was the sound of wind. It's only fitting that it be the sound of wind. Because as you probably know, the word spirit in Scripture literally means wind or breath. The Holy Spirit is the holy wind or the holy breath of God. And so it's in the eternal triune Godhead that the Father breathes after the Son in the Spirit and that the Son breathes after the Father in the Spirit. That's the life of the Godhead. The love of the Godhead. Life. But the Spirit is not only life within God. The Spirit is life-giving outside of God. We opened our worship service singing a versification of Psalm 104, 285 probably also know 287, entitled A Meditation on Providence. Thy Spirit, O God, makes life to abound. The earth is renewed and fruitful, the ground. Even in the brute creation, the Spirit is life-giving. But it's especially in salvation that the Holy Spirit is life-giving. He breathes into God's elect people the life of the covenant so that He comes to the dead sinner and He breathes the life of God, quickens faith within the sinner and causes the believer then to breathe after, to pant after God in love. According to Ezekiel 37, which we read a moment ago, Ezekiel was down in the valley of dry bones Verse 9 and following, Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Wind connected to life. And now here's the first sign of the Holy Spirit's coming on Pentecost is the sound of a rushing mighty wind or breath signifying that when the Spirit comes, He breathes life into the sinner. The second thing we learn about the Spirit in His coming from this sign is that He's efficacious. 
powerful as the life-giving Spirit. This is not a soft, calm, gentle breeze on a beautiful summer day. This is the sound of a rushing, mighty wind. Mighty. And mighty winds in Scripture are known for their power. God wasn't in the wind. Elijah was very thankful for that. God wasn't in the wind. God came in the still, small voice. But it was that wind that rent the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks. God's wind. Or remember how the wind blew and it knocked over the house where Job's children were feasting and all of them died. Or recall that God says that His wind can break in pieces the ships of Tarshish. Or probably the greatest wind in all of Scripture is found in Acts chapter 27. Paul and the other prisoners, they board a ship in Palestine, that area. They set sail through the Mediterranean. Eventually they come under the southern part of the island of Crete. And down from the mountains of Crete, here comes Eurachlodon, this mighty, tempestuous wind that took that massive Alexandrian grain ship and started tossing it around in the waves and the winds like it were a little football in that massive sea. Mighty, powerful winds. Rushing winds in the Scriptures signify power, often destructive power, but nonetheless, power. And now... When the Spirit of Jesus Christ comes to the church, when the Spirit comes to the elect sinner, He comes in power and strength. He's sovereignly free. Mighty Spirit. He does not blow against us in our depravity to no avail. He has an unstoppable, efficacious power. We'll come back to this and say more In a moment. Third, this sign teaches us about the Holy Spirit that in His coming He is mysterious. That's evident from the fact that this first sign is the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Wind is mysterious. John 3 verse 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, And whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Go outside on a windy day. You can't pinpoint the location that is the origin of the wind. You can't do a measurement and say, well, I've calculated it's about 20 feet this side of that oak tree. It's a few steps south of the fence line. That's where the wind begins. Right here. From here cometh the wind. You don't know. Where does the wind come from? And you try to trace the wind. Where does it go? The wind is mysterious. And so is the Spirit in His workings. Furthermore, that the sound came according to the opening verses of the text. Suddenly... Not gradually as an intensifying breeze, but that it came suddenly in full strength indicates the mysterious power 
of the sovereignly free Spirit. He doesn't work according to your will and my will. He doesn't work according to our expectations. He doesn't work according to our timing. We often wish we could say, Spirit, move Him now. Spirit, change her today. He moves whithersoever and wherever He pleases. The sovereign Spirit of Christ is mysterious. Fourth and finally, we learn of the Spirit in His coming from this first sign that the origin of the Spirit is heaven. And suddenly, there came a sound from heaven. The disciples heard the sound coming from above, from heaven. So if you want to know about the Spirit of Pentecost and the origin of the Spirit, you and I have to go up into heaven. The veil has to be rolled back. And when we peer by faith up into heaven, there He is. Your Christ, the exalted Lord Jesus Christ who ascended up into heaven, the Spirit comes from Him. And if you go back 40 days from that ascension, there He is. Christ emerging victoriously out of the grave with new life. And you go back to that Friday where He's hanging on the cross as the Passover lamb. There He was bearing all of our guilt and the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Had He not done that, take all the unstoppable force and destructive wrath of God, it's against you through all time and eternity. But the Lamb, He bore away the wrath of God. The Lamb shed His blood for our sins. You want to go back? Keep going back from the cross. In fact, go all the way back according to the teaching of Acts chapter 2 later in the chapter where we read that the crucified Christ was delivered according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You want to know the source of the Spirit? You have to go all the way back to the eternal counsel of God. His electing love. His divine heart of love. It came out of that counsel and love of God. The promise of the Christ. And the Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered and died as the Passover Lamb. He was raised from the dead. He ascended up into heaven. And now that Lord Jesus Christ who earned all the harvest blessings of salvation, He pours out, according to God's counsel, He pours out His Spirit upon the church. This Spirit, the sign indicating that the Spirit comes from heaven. The sound as of a rushing mighty wind. The Pentecost Spirit has come. The significance of the first sign of the Spirit's coming is that it reveals the power, the might of Jesus' Spirit in salvation. This sign is teaching us the eye of our reformed TULIP, that acronym, T. All men by nature are T. Totally depraved. 
You, the great source of our salvation. You, unconditional election. L, the basis for our salvation. Limited atonement. Jesus making atonement for the elect on that cross. I, irresistible grace. And then the P, the preservation and perseverance of the saints. I, irresistible grace. This is really no different than the point we made just a moment ago about the efficacious nature of the Spirit in His working. When the Spirit comes to save, the Spirit is irresistible, unstoppable, sovereign, efficacious, to use the adjective of the text, mighty. The sound is of a rushing, mighty wind. That's what this sign underscores. What's the Spirit like when He comes? This sign tells us. Now the next sign, those cloven tongues like as of fire, they will teach us something, and especially what the Spirit is like when He's in and working in the heart. He's like fire. He purifies and He consecrates. And that third sign will teach us many things, but especially what is the result of of the Spirit's working in the heart. There will be tongues consecrated unto God and tongues all throughout the world so that a universal church is lifting up praises unto God, speaking the wonderful works of God in many different languages. That's Pentecost fully come. A universal church speaking the wonderful works of God to His praise because the Spirit has sanctified the heart, the Spirit having come And now we're at the first sign. The Spirit comes. How does He come? Mighty. Irresistible. Sovereign. To bestow the harvest blessings earned by the Lamb. What power the Spirit possesses. Though man is by nature opposed to God. And opposed to salvation. Man is opposed to the good salvation of our God. Though that's true, there's nothing in Satan and there is nothing in man that can slow, that can resist, that can stop the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes to the church and to a heart to save It doesn't matter how the heart may be swollen and swelling moment by moment, swelling in hatred for God and blasphemy against God. It doesn't matter how vile the heart. When the Holy Spirit comes, there is nothing that can stop the Holy Spirit. There's nothing inside of man There's nothing that man needs to do to make the Spirit effectual. There's nothing that man must contribute to make the Spirit effectual. There is no condition that man has to fulfill, which if he does not fulfill that condition, the Holy Spirit stands stymied. There's no offer that man has to accept in order for the Holy Spirit 
to go to work in Him. The Spirit never comes to a heart to knock, to plead, to beg for permission to enter. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that when He comes initially for the very first time in regeneration to a dead heart. Neither does the Holy Spirit do that when He comes in all of His gracious operations repeatedly through the preaching of the Gospel to work faith and to work repentance and to work love for God in the regenerated believer. The Spirit never waits upon. The Spirit never relies upon the willing and or the doing of the sinner. The Spirit comes in irresistible power. He cannot be stopped. When He comes with the intention to save, there's nothing in the whole universe that can stop, slow, or resist the Holy Spirit. He is irresistible in His power like a rushing mighty wind, absolutely sovereign. When He decides to overtake you, He comes and He will break down the strongholds of opposition to God in your heart. When He comes to you like dry bones in the valley, He breathes life into you efficaciously and you arise with new life and declare, The Lord hath done it. Stand in awe of the power of the Spirit of Christ. Now do that. As you think about regeneration, that first initial work of the Holy Spirit, sometimes when the Holy Spirit comes to regenerate, He breathes life into the seed of the covenant in the line of the covenant, when a child is yet an unborn baby in the womb. There's a little baby having a believing father and mother, a little baby growing in the womb. That baby is by nature conceived dead. That baby is totally depraved. If there is no work of grace upon that baby, that baby will be born and will grow up as an unbeliever who despises God. Sometimes the Spirit is pleased to regenerate a baby already in the womb. And when the Spirit comes into the heart of that little baby, there's nothing in the universe. There's nothing in the heavens above or in the earth beneath. There's nothing in the baby itself or the mother of the baby that can stop the irresistible Spirit in His coming. The Spirit will come and plant the seed of faith in the baby so that when the baby is born and the baby grows up, soon enough you will see the evidences of faith in a little child who believes in God and confesses the name of the Lord Jesus. When the Spirit comes, He comes irresistibly. And he comes mysteriously. The mother can't perceive it. She had no idea. Now she can feel her baby in her womb. She may have a little bulge and say, you see that? That's a heel. I feel that. I feel the baby kicking. 
she cannot perceive whether the Holy Spirit has come and regenerated her child. That's astounding because when that Spirit comes, He comes like the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Heavenly supernatural power. But it's so mysterious. Irresistible. No one can stop the Spirit. Now think about when the Holy Spirit comes to bring regeneration, to bring conversion to an elect, unbelieving, impenitent adult who's lived his whole life in unbelief, like Saul of Tarsus, or these Jews. Later in Acts chapter 2, this was read this morning, Peter stands up and he starts preaching, and who should be in his audience but the most despicable sinners on the face of the earth. Those who committed the most atrocious crimes against God in the audience are some of the Jews who 50 days earlier murdered God's Son. They said, crucify Him, crucify Him. Let His blood be upon us and our children. We have no king but Caesar. There they were, those blasphemous haters of God and His Christ. They were in the audience. And now they're listening to Peter's sermon. And suddenly, and mysteriously, and irresistibly, through the Word, here comes the Spirit. So that we read in verse 37. Verse 36, Peter says, you crucified Him. Verse 37, now when they heard this, They were pricked. They were pricked in their heart, pierced through with the pain of guilt. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. If we keep reading down to verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and so on. How do you explain this flurry of activity? God and Christ-hating murderers of the Messiah, and now we have them continuing in the Apostles' doctrine. Fifty days earlier, they murdered the Word. Now they're continuing in the Word. How do you explain that? How do you explain the fact that they repented? They turned from their sin. How do you explain the fact that they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? How do you explain the fact that their heart was pricked so that they were convicted of their guilt? We did. We murdered the Son of God. How do you explain that? All that activity. The Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came. The Spirit of Christ was breathed into their dead hearts 
And that explains everything that follows. How could these things have happened in hearts that hated Christ? The irresistible, efficacious, unstoppable, sovereign spirit. He came. They could not stop him. And he sweetly turned them. He bent their will. And thus they cried out. What astounding power the Spirit has. Now, when we desire the salvation of another person, we pray for them. We pray for them. We bring the Holy Scriptures and we read the Scriptures and we apply the Scriptures to them. It may happen in the instituted church that the consistory begins the process of Christian discipline. The heart, it's so hard. It's so stubborn. And now discipline. And we utilize these means of prayer and the Scripture, perhaps discipline, but none of these means can avail. None of these means can change. The heart. But the Spirit can. The Spirit never fails. And if the Spirit's pleased to work through and use the prayer, if the Spirit's pleased to work through the Word, if the Spirit's pleased to work through the discipline, He will. And no matter how that heart may be hard, that heart cannot resist the Holy Spirit. When He comes, He comes and saves and never fails. And that's not only true with us individually, that's true on the mission field too. In the mission context, when the word is proclaimed, no matter who may be in the audience, no matter how great their hatred may be for the gospel, when the Spirit targets one of them and locks in on one of them according to God's eternal decree of election, it doesn't matter how stubborn and rebellious they may be, There is no stopping the Spirit. He's irresistible. And stand in awe of His power when you think of His work in you. Repeatedly. Sometimes we come to church, our hearts are very cold. We're we're so caught up in the cares and affairs of this earthly life. Maybe we didn't even prepare for worship on Saturday. We wake up at the last minute, come rushing into church. We're drowsy. All our mind can think about is sports or my work or my vacation or my life. And I really don't have any love for God. And here I sit. Or sometimes we come to church and our heart is, is swollen with bitterness. So bitter and proud and jealous. Or a man comes to church, he's a husband, he has a wife, and he refuses. He refuses to acknowledge that the disagreement they just had turned into a, kind of turned into an argument. He refuses to acknowledge It was my fault. Maybe they were arguing in the vehicle on the way to church. And he sits down in the pew and there's this cold tension between them. Nobody knows it, only God. He won't say it's my fault. And there he sits in God's house. Or a young person comes to church just mad. 
comes in at the last moment, so upset with dad and mom, sits, sits in the last chair at the end of the row, won't even look down at mom and dad, just angry with the way they've been directing the affairs of the life of the home, the instruction, the counsel they've given, uh, their refusal to allow this or that. And there sits the young person in church. There we sit in church with no will or power to change. No will, no power to love him. To repent, to say it's my fault, to love the neighbor. And the scriptures are opened up and the servant of the Lord proclaims the gospel of the Lord Jesus out of the scriptures and the spirit works with that word. And here comes the Spirit. Unstoppable, sovereign, mighty, irresistible Spirit like a rushing mighty wind. And He breaks into your heart by His gracious operation. And He tears down those strongholds of opposition. He fans again that flame of faith. There's there's faith there. The Spirit's there. He fans that flame back into activity. He brings the will and the power to fall down before God, to say, I'm sorry, O God, to plead the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. He so works within the heart that it's not even before they get home that the husband is already turning to his wife and saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's my fault. And as soon as they get home, the young person walks in to the kitchen says, Dad and Mom, sorry for my attitude and how I've been behaving. The Spirit, the powerful Pentecost Spirit. It'd be easier to stop a tornado that sounds like a thousand freight trains traversing the sky. It'd be easier to stand on Paul's Alexandrian grain ship in the Mediterranean Sea and stiff-arm Eurachlodon than it would be to stiff-arm heaven and the Spirit of the exalted Christ when He comes, no matter how hard your heart is, how cold it is, when He comes, He comes in irresistible power to turn you, to breathe life into you, the covenant life of God. That's Christ. Christ, by His Spirit, is strong to save. You know He was hanging on that cross as the Lamb. And they were scoffing Him. They were shooting out the lip. They were wagging their heads. They were were railing against Him. And He knew it. Some of them. In about 50 days, I'm coming for you. They hated Him. They nailed Him to that cross. But He saw some of them. 
And on Pentecost Sunday, it was Christ in heaven that poured out His Spirit upon the church. And through the preaching of Peter, that Spirit of Christ came into some of these hearts so that they were pricked. And they cried out, what shall we do? Christ, by His Spirit, strong to save. That's the significance of this, the first sign. Mighty is the Spirit in His coming. This sign was given to strengthen the confidence of the church, especially the apostles. Now I can imagine if I were in that house, I would have been very startled, jolted, and probably afraid. There they were, probably praying, communing with one, one with another, and all of a sudden this sound of a rushing mighty wind, that, that had to have created some fear in them. What is this? But the sign wasn't intended to make them afraid. The sign was intended to give them strength, confidence. This is the book of Acts. And the book of Acts teaches us that the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, He pours out His Spirit upon the church so that the church takes the gospel and goes into all the world, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, to the uttermost ends of the earth and brings the gospel. And that's how Jesus will gather, defend, and preserve His church by the Word and by the Spirit. And now the church must go out with the Word and the apostles, and they need the confidence of this sign because the forces of opposition are so strong. The world is so wicked. The Jews are so unbelieving, so easily provoked to jealousy. The Gentiles, just look at Jerusalem on the day when Peter stands up to preach. There they were. Those who murdered the Christ. How will Peter dare to stand up and open up Joel and start preaching? When they murdered the Son of God, why would they not murder Peter? And even if they don't murder him, their hearts are so hard having murdered the Christ. What's the use of the means of the word? Well, the apostles need confidence. The confidence of this sign. The confidence that when they bring the word, the gospel to the nations, it's not a matter of their eloquence and their wisdom and their power. The Spirit, through the word, is sovereign to save. Now go forth with the word. They needed strength from this sign. And may the Spirit of Christ strengthen you and me tonight. Maybe you do have a friend or a family member whose heart is very hard like iron. You are willing to save them. You, though, have no power Willing, but unable. The Spirit is able. He alone can save. Is He willing? We don't know. He's willing to save His church. What about a particular individual? We don't know. So we keep praying and pray. The Spirit is able. May He be willing to go into that heart and change it. The Spirit cannot be stopped. And are we not the living proof of the power of the Pentecost Spirit? All my life long, 
It is true. I, within me, I have no will and no power to repent. Every day of my life it is true that I, in me, I have no will, no power to believe. All my life long, as long as I live on this earth, within me, I have no will, and no power to love God. None whatsoever in me. But the power is in the Pentecost spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he continually comes as the breath of God. He breathes into us over and over and over again so that we believe and we repent and we love and we walk in a new and godly life. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about him? The spirit and the power of the spirit in your own heart. Pentecost, spirit, for him, God be thanked. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we pray that thy name may be honored on this Pentecost Sunday as we commemorate the great event of the Spirit's coming. What a precious promise of Christ that he will abide with us forever as our comforter. Comfort hearts tonight. and Then may our tongues show forth thy praises. In Jesus' name do we pray. Amen.